Hello and welcome to Solutions. This is the third episode of our second series of podcasts for solution-focused hypnotherapists and I'm Cathy Eland. Hello, I'm Trevor Evans and we're both experienced solution-focused hypnotherapists. Today we're investigating happiness and what we and our clients can do to make ourselves happier. So here's a warning that this podcast could seriously improve your mental health as a therapist. Yes. So let's start with the definition. Daniel Nettle, in his book, Happiness, the Science Behind Your Smile, describes three levels of happiness. Level one, momentary feelings of joy and pleasure, short-term positive emotions. Level two, happiness, judgments about feelings. If a person is asked about how happy they are with their life in general, their answer will reflect a level two assessment of their happiness. Level three, happiness a higher meaning of life, flourishing and fulfilling one's potential. This is like Maslow's self-actualization. Yeah, and happiness has been divided into two basic approaches, the hedonic approach and the eudaimonic approach. The hedonic approach focuses on attaining pleasure and avoiding pain. The eudaimonic approach is all about meaning in life and self-realization. I can remember a few years ago talking to someone who assured me that once they got their hands on the new iPhone that was coming out next week, they would be the happiest person in the world. I saw them just over a week later and they proudly showed off their new phone. I did say this was a few years ago and told me the story of how far they had to travel to get to the shop and how long the queue was, etc, etc. But they were definitely happy. Proof, if proof were needed, the possessions make you happy. Except that I saw them again a number of times over the next few months. And by the end of that period, they were no happier with their new phone than they had been before they got it. Oh dear. Proof that possessions don't make you happier. Or if they do, it's only for a short while. Yeah, I agree. And let's try another example. Think about life in the 1940s. You'd think that people are happier now with central heating, mobile phones, 60-inch TV sets, wouldn't you? So it must come as a surprise to find that we're not. In her 2007 book, The How of Happiness, A New Approach to Getting the Life You Want, Sonia Lubereski looked at how life satisfaction in the 1940s compared with more recent times. And guess what? She found that we weren't as happy. Similarly, David G. Myers, in his 2000 book, The American Paradox, Spiritual Hunger in an Age of Plenty, found that our becoming much better off over the last four decades has not been accompanied by one iota of increased subjective well-being. Mm. As hypnotherapists, we see a lot of people for weight loss. They expect to be happier when they've dropped a dress size or whatever. Yet a 2014 study by Jackson et al. found that weight loss didn't necessarily make people feel any happier. Well, how about going for cosmetic surgery? Wouldn't that solve all their problems and make them completely happy? A 2012 study by von Seurst et al. looking at women in Norway following cosmetic surgery and its effects on psychological factors and mental health found that plastic surgery just didn't seem to alleviate mental health problems. Interesting. So what's stopping people from becoming happier? Do people think they deserve to be happy? It is a common notion. And can people change? Yes, they can. What about finding true love? Isn't that the route to perfect happiness? The answer is yes and no. 
a 2003 study by Lucas et al, found that people get happier as they get nearer to their wedding. But once they've used to being married, about two years later, their happiness returns to its previous baseline value. Yet most people think that having plenty of money makes you happier. That's what Dinia and Oshi 2000 set out to investigate. They looked at life satisfaction and income in different countries. However, they didn't find a strong relationship between the two, suggesting that income doesn't necessarily make you happier. No, and in 2010, Kahneman and Deaton looked at the effects of a high income. They found that money improves a person's evaluation of their life, but not their emotional well-being. Once you reach a certain income, more money won't make you happier. Trouble with money is that it's comparative. So if I told you that I was giving you a million pounds, you'd be very happy. Mm. That is, until you heard that I was giving everyone else two million. Sonia Libomirsky also showed in her book that a person's salary goals rise as their salary rises. Tantalizingly, you never reach the salary you think you deserve. And you probably think that those findings may be true for other people, but not for you. Well, again, research has found that people aren't very good at predicting by how much things will make them happier or by how much bad things will make them unhappy. Let's suppose, for example, you've applied for a job that you wanted, but you didn't get it. I imagine you'd feel disappointed and upset. A study by Gilbert et al. in 1998 found that people just didn't feel as bad as they expected when they got turned down for a job. So we can conclude from this that what we expect will make us happy doesn't or won't for very long. You never get paid enough. And people aren't very good at predicting how happy or sad they're going to feel after an event occurs. It's worth pointing this out to unhappy clients. So people want to be happy, but don't know what to do to become happy. And that is a bit of a problem, isn't it? Yeah, some people think that how happy they are, their happiness level, is predetermined by their genes. However, Sonia Vermersky, again, in The How of Happiness, suggests that 50% of happiness is genetically predetermined, while 10% is due to life circumstances, and 40% is the result of a person's personal outlook. So we can conclude people do have some control over how happy they are. Yeah, and why aren't we very good at predicting our happiness levels? It seems that most people predict their happiness in terms of absolutes. So if I get X amount of salary, if I get that particular car or particular phone, if I get a house with X number of bedrooms, I will be a 10 on that scale of 1 to 10. But it seems in real life, people compare themselves to other people. Their happiness is relative to other people's happiness. My four-bedroom house is not that good when my work colleague has a five-bedroom house. They have a relative reference point rather than, as they think, an absolute reference point. So let's look at a real-life example. If I win a medal at the Olympics, I would probably predict that I would be happier than those athletes that didn't win any medals. And that sounds sensible, doesn't it? You could predict that the gold medal winner is the happiest, the silver medalist slightly less happy, and the bronze medalist still very happy, but less than the silver medalist. A 1990 study by Medvek et al. looked at pictures of winners on the podium, and as expected, gold medal winners are very happy. Perhaps surprisingly, silver medal winners seem almost unhappy, 
And that's because it suggested their reference point is the gold medalist who was better than them. The bronze medalist looks happier than the silver medalist. And that's because their reference point is the rest of the competitors. And they are happy because they are better than everyone else. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Clark and Oswald in 1996 surveyed 5,000 British workers looking at a person's job satisfaction. They found something similar. It turned out that where a person's co-workers earned more money than they did, that person became less satisfied with their job. It didn't matter absolutely how much they earned. It was the relative reference point, i.e. their co-workers, that mattered. And in 1997, Solnick and Hemingway looked at relative reference points with students. The students were given a choice. Option one was a job where they earned $50,000 and everyone else on the same grade earned $25,000. Option two was a job where they earned $100,000, but everyone else on the same grade earned $250,000. Over 50% chose option one the lower salary because of the comparison. Yeah, and there's also a study by Clark in 2003 that found unemployed people were happier if the unemployment rate was high in their area rather than if they lived in an area of low unemployment. Another example of people using a relative reference point. And I suppose the worrying thing about using a relative reference point is that we compare ourselves against that reference. So you might predict that if you watch TV programs full of good-looking, healthy people, we will feel less good about ourselves. And if we compare ourselves with our neighbours, we end up keeping up with the Joneses. Ogwin and Shrum in 1997 found that TV programmes featuring products and activities associated with an affluent lifestyle act as a harmful social comparison, skewing a person's perception of other people's wealth and their own wealth. Similarly, Juliette B. Schlaw, 1999 book of The Overspent American, Why We Want What We Don't Need, suggests that watching TV acts as a harmful social comparison and increases the amount a person spends each week. Or suppose your neighbours win the lottery and buy a new car. What are you likely to do? The answer is also to buy a new car. Kuhn et al. in 2011 looked at the Dutch postcode lottery and found that people living next door to lottery winners are more likely to buy a new car. It's another example of social comparison influencing our spending and there are plenty of other similar results from research. Yeah, social comparison on social media can also have negative effects. In 2014, Vogel et al. looked at social comparison on social media and a person's self-esteem. They found that comparing ourselves on social media lowers our self-esteem. They also manipulated the Facebook feed to feature people who were worse off than the subjects. But even that didn't lead to much higher self-esteem ratings. So it is worth pointing out to our clients that their happiness may be due to inappropriate comparisons with other people. Yeah, we mentioned earlier that people get used to good things and so don't stay happier than they were previously. This is called hedonic adaptation. This applies to lottery wins, getting married, pay rises, and most other things. Daniel Gilbert, in his 2007 book, Stumbling on Happiness, says that wonderful things are especially wonderful the first time they happen. 
but their wonderfulness wanes with repetition. Yeah, and as previously mentioned, people are bad at predicting how happy or sad events are going to make them. They tend to overestimate how happy they will be following a good event and overestimate how bad they will feel following a bad event. Research indicates that people are more resilient when facing bad things and less excited about good ones, or their estimates are just completely off. <laughs> Gilbert et al. 1998 found that people are generally unaware of their psychological immune system, which is why they tend to overestimate their emotional reactions to negative events. Similarly, Eastwick et al. 2008 found that people mispredict how they will feel if they break up with a significant other. They think they will feel much worse than they actually do. Aiton et al. 2007 suggested that a person's affective forecast, i.e. predicting their emotional response given a certain outcome, are too extreme. Worryingly, the research also found that people don't seem able to predict their response with any greater accuracy even when they have previously experienced that emotional event. That's fascinating. And one reason given for why people overestimate the effect of an event on their happiness is that they focus on that single event and don't include all the other things going on in their life. Again, Daniel Gilbert's 2007 book, Stumbling on Happiness, offers some suggestions as to why people mispredict. He suggests two cognitive biases, Focalism and immune neglect. Focalism is the tendency of people to think about just that one event and forget about the other things that happen in their life. Immune neglect is a person's unawareness of the tendency to adapt and to cope with the negative events. Dunetel, 2002, wrote that our predictions are worse for negative events. They suggest that when a person thinks about the future, they tend to focus on the wrong features and overestimate their importance. Hmm. So what can people do to make themselves happier? Clearly, people don't seem to know what will make them happy and they can't predict how happy or sad anything is going to make them. The good news is that there are a number of things people can do to make themselves happier. Firstly, they can spend their money on experiences rather than on things. Boven and Gilovich, 2003, found that it's better to do than to have, i.e. experiences make people happier. And Kumar, et al., 2014, found that experiences have a longer-lasting effect on happiness. However, Pachelin and Howell, 2014, warned us that when people are looking at future purchases, they're more likely to value material purchases over experiential purchases. Even though when they look at past purchases, they're more likely to value experiences over material goods. Howell and Hill, 2009, advised that experiential purchases make a person feel more alive and they're less susceptible to social comparisons. Okay. And another technique to make people happy is savouring. And savouring is the use of thoughts and actions to increase the intensity, duration and appreciation of positive experiences and emotions. For example, Jose et al. 2012 found that savouring positive experiences makes a person happier. And Ubermersky et al. in 2006 found that thinking about life's positive moments makes a person happier. Surprisingly, they also found that writing about life's negative moments made a person happier too. 
and Coup et al. 2008 found that thinking about how something good in their life might not have happened if things had been different actually makes you happier. Kurtz 2008 looked at whether focusing on the imminent ending of a positive life experience can lead to increased enjoyment. The research found that thinking about an experience coming to an end can enhance a person's present enjoyment of that experience. Mm. Yeah, gratitude is another way of increasing a person's happiness. Emmons et al. 2003 found that if a person counts their blessings, the good things in their life, they become happier. The 2015 study by Barton et al. looked at financial distress and marital quality. It found that being grateful can help people through difficult times. Grant and Gino in 2010 found that receiving gratitude makes people feel valued and motivates them to be more generous. Mm. And strangely, people enjoy things more when they are interrupted. It seems to disrupt the normal process of hedonic adaptation. For example, Nelson and Mavis, 2008, found that despite not wanting them, people actually enjoy positive experiences more when they have breaks. And Nelson et al, 2009, found that adverts actually make the experience of watching TV more positive. So uh, don't tell Netflix. <laughs> Martin Seligman, who came up with the idea of positive psychology, also came up with the idea of signature strengths in his book, Authentic Happiness. Signature strengths are desires or dispositions to act or feelings that seem to lead to recognisable excellence or instances of flourishing. They're the character strengths that are most essential to who we are. And Seligman identified 24 of them. They tend to be morally valued in most moral systems in the world. Seligman et al. 2005 found that when people use their top signature strengths in a new and different way every day for one week, it had an enduring impact on their happiness. Similarly, Levy and Lippmann Ovadia 2017 found that people who use signature strengths at work are more productive and more satisfied with their job, while Hazer and Roosh 2012 found that people enjoy work more and think of work as a calling when they use around four of their signature strengths at work. So that's another way that people can be happier. That could be really useful. Uh, but what other things can you do to make you happy? Being kind makes you happy. That's what Otega Tal found in 2006. Happy people become happier through kindness. The kinder you are, the happier you, you become. Similarly, Lubomirsky in 2005 found that people who intentionally carried out random acts of kindness made themselves happier. Elizabeth Dunn wrote in her book, Happy Money, The Science of Happier Spending, that money can buy happiness if you spend it on the right things, such as spending money on others rather than yourself. This matched Dunn et al's 2008 findings that spending money on other people promotes happiness and makes you feel good. Yeah, we always talk about the three P's or the four P's, or I know some people who now talk about the five P's to clients. And there's a lot of evidence showing that the third P, positive interaction, is good for people. In 2000, David Myers found that having strong social ties makes people healthier. In 2002, Dina and Seligman wrote that being social, having strong social ties, makes people happier. Epley and Schroeder, 2014, found something that at first glance seems completely counterintuitive. Talking to people on the bus or the train is better than sitting in solitude. 
In their experiment, two people came into a sort of waiting room. One subject was instructed to talk or not talk or just do what they would normally do. In every case, where people talked, they felt better than where they didn't. So it's worth striking up a conversation with strangers. Both of you get a happiness boost after that chat. The findings of Boothby et al. 2014 are not surprising from our past experience. If we share an experience with another person, then the experience is amplified and enjoyed more by the people taking part. That's interesting. And so what makes you happier? Having more time or more money? Willens et al. 2016 showed people two examples. First, there was Tina, who values her time more than money. She's willing to sacrifice money to have more free time. She'd rather work fewer hours. And then there's Maggie, who values her money more than her time. She's willing to sacrifice lots of time to get money. She'd work more hours to earn more money rather than take time off. The subjects were asked which examples they were more like and then how happy they are. Researchers found that people who prioritise time over money, i.e. like Tina, were typically happier than those people who prioritise money over time. Hirschfeld et al. 2016 also found that people who choose time over money are happier. But they also found around 70% of people chose money over time and only 30% chose time over money. Cassie Bollinger in 2010 found that thinking about time makes a person happier than thinking about money. In addition, thinking about time boosts the motivation to socialize, which is associated with greater happiness. And just to finish with some tips and hints, remember what you focus on, you amplify. When we learn something new, we don't learn like a straight line. We have a plateau, we have dips. It's a zigzag line and it's helpful to remember that. Happiness is not about ignoring problems or denying them. That's certainly going to make you miserable. It's about solving the problem. To be happy, we need something to solve. And finally, it's an activity. It's a work in progress. So let's get to it. Hmm. Good. And we haven't even mentioned laughter and how good for you laughing can be. True. Anyway, Armed with the information we've talked about, it should be possible to help our clients and us to think about what we want and to help them to do things that will make them happier. And talking of laughter, perhaps we could finish with a joke, Trevor. Did you hear about the albino clairvoyant master hypnotist from San Francisco? He was super pallid, Cali mystic expert at hypnosis. All I can say is groan. Um, well, that's about it from us. Next time we'll be looking at the primitive brain. So it's goodbye from me, Trevor Eddles. And it's goodbye from me, Cathy Eland. See you next time. Yeah, bye. Bye.